0: Summer's just getting started. This is our summer series. Uh, starting this this morning. I'm going to kick this series off. I'm going to get it started. And then uh, Pastor Joel, for the next two weeks, is going to carry it on while I'm away on vacation. And then I'm going to come back and uh, we'll just keep it going throughout the rest of the summer. So I'm really excited about this series. We've been working on it for a while, uh, planning this series out. And so, what I want to do this morning is I want to introduce the series. This is the series premiere. I want to introduce it. I want to tell you what the series is going to look like, some of the things we're going to talk about, some of the myths we're going to bust. And I want to make a point this morning about the importance of truth above all. And so that's where we'll conclude our, ser- our, um, our sermon this morning, but the series will continue on. So uh, the purpose of this series is to bust common myths concerning core doctrines. This series is important because, guys, truth is important. Truth is important. Truth with a capital T, it's of utmost importance. It really, really matters. Truth matters more than ever uh, because we live in a culture where truth is being denied and uh, reality is being defied. And so truth matters and we are the bearers of truth. The church is not the arbiter of truth. We didn't make it up but we are the bearers of truth. We bear truth in the world. We bring truth to bear on every situation because the truth, Jesus, lives in us. The myths that we're going to talk about in this series originate from bad doctrine, itching ears, and carnal desires. The church and and the culture at large wanders off into myths When they have bad theology or itching ears, meaning there's something they want to hear and so they find people who will say it, or they have carnal desires, fleshly desires, the desires of the flesh. That's where these myths that we're going to bust come from. And busting these myths is a loving effort to ensure that you and I receive a crown of righteousness. I'm not busting these myths. Pastor Joel is not going to bust these myths because we have some type of uh, score to settle. Uh, We don't want to point out errors for the sake of pointing out errors, but we want to bust these myths in a loving effort or in a loving way so that you and I might receive a crown of righteousness. The key verse for this entire series is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 to 4. It'll be on the screen for you. 2 Timothy 4, 3, 4 says this, for the time, we talked a lot about time last week, for the time, for the era, for the time is coming when people will not endure, won't put up with, won't tolerate sound teaching, truth, they're not going to put up with it. They're not going to put up with systematic theology. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to what? Suit their own passions. Remember I said these myths come from uh, bad theology, itching ears, and carnal passions. And so here Paul says the time is coming when people are going to reject sound teaching, they're going to reject truth, and they're going to accumulate people who will scratch their ears and tell them things that suit their own passions, their own carnal desires, then what does Paul say? They're going to turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths, and so that's where the title of this series comes from, myth. Busters. This is a loving effort on our part so that you would achieve a crown of righteousness and not turn away and wander off. You see, one of the things that we see in this key verse is that if the word is not preached, people will turn away and wander off. If there is no sound teaching, the result is people will turn away and wander off. Now, if people turn away, they will promote speculation. Uh, open your Bible to First Timothy, chapter one, verse three to six. First Timothy, chapter one, and verse three to six. Of course. We're reading now from Paul's first letter to this young pastor named Timothy. 1 Timothy 1 3 to 6 reads As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myth and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than stewardship that is from God by faith. The aim of our charge is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. So we've been studying through the book of Acts in Bible study. And in Acts chapter 20, uh, Paul leaves the church that he planted in Ephesus. And when he leaves that church, he warns them, watch out for fierce wolves who will come in among you and rise up from within you to lead the disciples away after them. One of the people that he warns in Acts chapter 20 to watch out is this young pastor, Timothy. And he refers to that when he says, when I left you and was going to Macedonia, I, I told you and those who were in charge at Ephesus uh, not to teach anything different, no different doctrine, and don't devote yourselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation. But he says our charge comes from a pure heart, and a good conscience, sincere faith. Certain persons swerving from these have wandered off into vain discussion. So, when people turn away, they promote speculation, vain discussion. Speculation is defined by Webster as a theory without evidence. Paul's word in the Greek here means vain talk, meaningless talk. Talk with no power. Talk with no purpose. And so Paul says when people turn away from the truth, from sound doctrine, it promotes speculation. It promotes theories without evidence. It promotes vain talk instead of sincere faith. So sound doctrine produces sincere faith. False teaching promotes speculation and vain talk. So what we see from our key verse is that when the word is not preached, people will turn away and wander off. When people turn away, they promote speculation. When people finally wander off, they do not have God, and they lose their reward. Flick over near the end of the book, 2 John chapter 1, verse 8 to 10. Listen to what John the Beloved, the love apostle, writes about people who wander off into myths. Second John chapter one, and there's only one chapter, verse eight to 10. "Watch yourselves." Paul told Timothy and the pastors in Ephesus, "Watch out for the fierce wolves that'll come in from without and rise up from within. Watch the flock. And now John says to individual believers, you watch out too. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for. Who's the you? You. Who's the we? The apostles. Watch yourselves that you don't lose what we have worked for. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. But whoever abides, whoever lives in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive them into your house or give them any greeting. Look at this warning in verse 11. For whoever greets the false teacher takes part in his wicked works. False teaching is... Is not a meh with God. God calls false teaching a wicked work. And John, the love apostle, he warns against false teaching. And he says, don't even greet those people. Don't even say hello. If they come on TV, turn off the TV. If your YouTube algorithm plays them next, turn it off. Don't even welcome them into your house, for you are participating in their wicked works. 2 John 1 9, anyone who goes on ahead does not have God, but anyone who abides has both the Father and the Son, teaches us this morning that it's not how you start, it's how you finish. You can start off believing some good things, and, of course, we are saved by grace through faith in our belief in Jesus and his finished work. You start by belief, but, guys, you finish by belief as well. And if you keep on believing, if you keep on abiding, you will have both God and his son. But if you turn away and wander off, John says you don't have God. Now, I don't know what that means particularly. I don't know if it means you lose your salvation and you got to get saved again. I don't know exactly what that means, but a plain understanding of that text tells me that that is something I want to avoid altogether. I want you to avoid it too. Abide in the teaching of Christ. I lovingly exhort you today, abide in the teaching of Christ. Christ and Christ alone. Now, let's flick back to our, um, our key verse, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3-4. And let's put this into context, and I basically already did, but let me do it again. The book of 2 Timothy is the last epistle, the last letter that Paul ever wrote. He wrote it during his second Roman imprisonment. While he was awaiting trial in a dark, damp dungeon, Paul made a special effort to write his young protege in the city of Ephesus, where the false teaching Paul addressed in his first letter that we just read from continued to be a problem. In Acts chapter 20, Paul said when he was leading Ephesus, watch out because the fierce wolves are going to show up. In 1 Timothy, Paul said... Uh, to Timothy, the wolves are here. they arrived, guard the flock, and now, years later, when Paul writes a second letter to Timothy, this false teaching problem is still uh, going on, and so he writes this letter to Timothy and our text this morning for just a few more moments is second Timothy chapter four, verse one to two we 're going to take a run-up to our key verse here. So if you have your Bible, 2 Timothy 4, 1-2, to it reads like this. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God. This is a righteous charge. He says that Jesus Christ is the one who is to judge the living and the dead when he appears. And so, in the meantime, from now until he appears, preach the word. The whole counsel of God with emphasis on the gospel. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15... Paul says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Preach the whole counsel of God, the word of truth, everything in it. And emphasize the gospel. Be ready in season and out of season. Be ready in every situation, when it's popular and when it's unpopular. And we live in a time and a day and age when the gospel is unpopular. But be ready. And reprove people. Rebuke people. Exhort, encourage people with the word of truth, with complete patience and teaching. The Word of God does more than exhort. The Word of God rebukes. It corrects us. It disciplines us. The Word of God is used for reproof as well. Reproof simply means to reprove. Sometimes we go on through where we go throughout our life and and there's particular beliefs and doctrines that we kind of forget about. We don't pay much attention to them. The Bible reproves them for us. When we doubt, the Bible, the Word of God, reproves them to us. The problem is when we doubt, when we question, many people don't go back to the book. They go out to the teachers who'll scratch their itching ears. Or they go to churches with unfaithful preaching to scratch their itching ears instead of going to the book. I'm not infallible, this book is. I'm not inerrant, I make mistakes. The book is inerrant. The book is immutable, it doesn't change. Go to the source, go to the standard. It will reprove for you the things you question and the things you doubt. And Paul says to Timothy, do this with complete patience and teaching. In his preaching, Timothy was to bring the word of God, the word of truth, to bear on the lives of the people. Remember I said a few moments ago, we are not the arbiters of truth. We didn't create truth. We don't determine what truth is. But we have the standard of truth, and we bear truth onto every situation, onto every issue. We are truth bearers. And, and Paul, in his charge to Timothy, when he says, preach the word, says, bring the word of God to bear on people's lives. He was not to treat the word as if it was filled with interesting ideas and fascinating theories. Instead, he was to hold the word of God up against the lives of the people. He was to hold the word of God up against the culture. And he was to let the word do its work. He was to let God transform people by the word. That's the work of the pastor, to hold the word of God up against you and me and to hold the word of God up against the culture and let God do what God is going to do. From our text this morning, we see that pastors, and by extension, I believe, the priesthood of all believers, Are charged to constantly emphasize the whole counsel of God, not just the parts they like. Now, there are parts of the Bible that I enjoy more than others. There are things that I focus on more than others. And you have those things too, and that's fine, that's good, but we are still charged to emphasize the whole work, uh, the whole word rather, of God, not just the parts we like. Now, this is demonstrated for us throughout this entire letter. Let me just go quickly through it. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.8, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, which Jesus said, This is the testimony of him. He said, These are they which testify of me. So Paul says, Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. In uh, chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Hold fast to the pattern of sound words. Hold on to systematic theology, he says. In 2 Timothy 2.2, he says, the things that you heard from me among many witnesses, commit them to faithful men and women. We read it in 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, rightly divide the word of truth. Interpret it and apply it appropriately. In 2 Timothy 2.24, he says, a servant of the Lord must be able to teach. And in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says that all scripture is the theonoustos, the exhale of God. It is God-breathed and inspired. So each of the core doctrines that we're going to talk about in this series, each of the myths we're going to bust, or for each of them, we're going to ask two questions. What does the zeitgeist say? And how has the zeitgeist crept into the church? Have you ever heard that word before? Zeitgeist, Okay. It, it does sound German. I don't know if it is. The zeitgeist is simply defined as this, the spirit or mood of our time. And Paul says to Timothy, for a time is coming. And so we can't impose the word zeitgeist onto this text because that's not what it says. But there's an implication that there's a time coming. And that time is not just a day, a week, a month, a year, but it is a spirit, it is a mood, it is an era. And the zeitgeist has a lot to say. The spirit of this age, the mood of our culture, has a lot to say. And so we're going to ask ourselves, what does the zeitgeist say about these core doctrines? And then we're going to ask ourselves, how has the zeitgeist, the spirit and mood of our time, crept into the church Jude says that false teaching and false doctrine creeps into the church while the church is unaware. That's why we're often told to watch out, pay attention, watch for yourself. The Zeitgeist creeps in and it creates bad theology and remember I said these myths that people wander off into, they originate from bad theology. When the spirit of the age creeps into the church it creates bad theology. And bad theology is the first step onto the slippery slope. The slippery slope argument is the only undefeated argument in all of history. Once you step onto the slippery slope, you will go all the way to the end. You never stop. No one ever has stopped on the slippery slope. What's the slippery slope? Well, it starts with... Unbelief. Did God really say? I don't believe the Bible would say something like that. No, that's not what that means. I don't believe it. It starts there. But then unbelief proceeds to error, where you make the Bible say something it doesn't. And the more you make the Bible say something it doesn't, the more likely you are to commit the sin of heresy or blasphemy, where you completely reject God and truth and reality. And when you do that, you separate. You use an old church history word. you, You schism. You break off. You divide. You go your own way. You wander off into myths. And so the slippery slope of bad theology is unbelief that leads to error, that leads to heresy, that ultimately leads to schism, where you don't have God, 2 John 1.9, because you've, you've wandered off. You haven't abided in the teachings. Zeitgeist, the spirit or mood of our time. The spirit or mood of our time because we're living in the time that Paul talked about here, for the time is coming. We're living in that time. The church has always lived in that time. The time we are living in is one of relative truth. And remember, I said this series matters because truth matters. We're living in a time of relative truth. In the culture today, there is a mass migration away from objective truth from objective reality, that is, what we can experience with our senses, what we can see, taste, touch, smell. See, taste, touch, smell. Here, <laughs> here. The culture is migrating away from objective truth and objective reality and when people refuse to submit to the laws of nature and nature's God, God does something. He gives people over, he gives cultures over, nations over, and he says to those people, those cultures and those nations, not my will, but yours be done. When people walk away from God, uh, when they walk away from objective truth and reality, they bring upon themselves what I've coined the 1832 judgment. What is the 1832 judgment? It's the judgment that's described in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 32. Turn there. Let's read it quickly. I know it sounds like a lot of verses, but it's not. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 32. And see if you recognize the Romans 18, 32 judgment being applied to our nation today. And don't worry, church, I'm getting to us too. Because I'm holding the word of truth up to to the culture first, but then I'm going to hold it up to us i got a few minutes left. Romans eight, chapter 1, verse 18 to 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and, on the, and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What's the greatest unrighteousness? Well, it sounds like it's suppressing the truth. The wrath of God is revealed against the unrighteousness of men who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived. So again, that which we can perceive with our senses. Ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they have no excuse. You look outside, you spend a weekend in nature like I did this weekend, and you are without excuse. It is only by the hand of God that we are here in this beautiful world. Verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, birds, animals, reptiles. They exchanged God for idols. Therefore, here's God's reaction. God gave them up, gave them over to the lusts of their hearts, Remember, we were talking about carnal desires suit their own passions. Here, Paul's talking about it to his letter in in, in Romans, or to the Romans. They became futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts claiming to be wise. Oh, sorry. Uh, Verse 24. Therefore, he gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Two more verses. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged what is natural. For those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Oh, the Bible doesn't talk about homosexuality. The New Testament, it's all grace. Yeah? Yeah? And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, they didn't see fit to even acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless ruthless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree, they know the truth that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not do them, but give approval to those who practice them. When we refuse to submit to the laws of nature and nature's God, God gives us over to an 1832 judgment. Think of it like this. When we look at the culture, we look at the world we live in, we say, it's bad out there. God is going to judge us. I think that's the wrong way to think about it, based on Romans chapter 1. I think we need to say it's bad out there because God has judged us. He's given us over. He's let us have our way. Now, God is going to one day come and finally judge and put away evil. But because God will not impose upon us his will but has given us a free will, he will say to us when we defy the laws of nature and nature's God... Have it your way. And I think that's what we're seeing in our world today. God has said to us, have it your way. You guys okay? I know it's kind of warm. I know it's kind of warm. Yeah, what's making it warm? The outside or the... Yeah. Okay, let me keep going. Remember, this is my last one for two weeks, so I really got to make it count i got to make it count. Okay. So we talked about the spirit or mood of the age migrating away from objective truth and reality. Out there. But guys, it's happening in here too. Maybe not so much in this room with Liberty Church, but with the church, there is a migration away from truth. It's not limited to the culture. It's crept in unaware and at times has been led by the church. Sometimes the immorality we see in the culture was led by the church, promoted by the church, endorsed by the church. Let me give you two examples quick. They're obvious ones, but just listen. Millions of Christians in recent years have migrated away from the biblical understanding of sexuality and gender. They affirm the rainbow cult. I'll never use the alphabet again. Not, not to disrespect people, but because I don't believe in the ideological movement that those letters represent. They keep adding to them, taking away from them. It is a rainbow cult. It is a, 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 a doctrine of demons... It is a dangerous ideology. It is nothing more or nothing less than that. The idea. The people are beautiful people. They're, they're deceived, but they bear the image of God. They are worth saving. Amen. Absolutely they are, but many in the church have migrated away from God's standard for sexuality and gender to affirm the rainbow cult. Popular and no longer faithful teachers like Andy Stanley call verses like we read in Romans twenty one twenty seven clobber verses where, you know, we just like to use those verses to beat people over the head with, and you've probably heard that argument before. He likes to call them clobber verses, and, and when he uses that phrase, you know, his audience erupts with applause. Pew Research discovered that 79% of Canadians, regardless of their religious affiliation, say that gay marriage is a net positive for society. 80% of Canadians surveyed, apart from religious affiliation, said gay marriage is a net positive. Romans... 127 and and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error verse 32 though they knew God's decree they did not practice these things and deserve to die now do we as the church take up arms against Homosexuals, no, because if you read the following paragraph, you're going to see that we have a tendency towards all that other stuff. In verse 28 and 29, all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, gossip, slander, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, and venerous. we we're all tempted with that stuff. We might not be tempted with verse 26 and 27, but we're tempted with verse 28 and 29 and 30. So that doesn't mean we're taking up swords and spears and saying, if you're gay, we're going to kill you, although that does happen in our world. That's not what I'm suggesting here by any means. But what I am saying is that there is a due penalty for uh, denying God. There is a due penalty for defying the laws of nature. That penalty is death. The wages of sin is death. We're all going to have to pay the wages. But if you believe in Jesus, you can know today that he paid your wages for you. But just think about that. 80% of Canadians say gay marriage is a net positive for society. That's why I say we've been given over to the 1832 judgment. Things are bad because God has given us over. He has judged us. He said, all right, have it your way. Here's another example, and, and, and we're at the one-year anniversary of this amazing ruling uh, yesterday. But an alarming number of Christians have migrated away from the biblical view of life to affirm either the killing of unborn babies or to assist in dying those who wish to no longer live. God's view of life is from conception until natural death. Any other view that we have of life is contrary to God's view. Pew Research, the same company that I talked about, discovered that 82% of Buddhists, 73% of people with no affiliation, and 60% of mainline Christians say that abortion should be legal in all cases. All cases. 60% of Christians, mainline Christians. So they're Christians in name only, to be honest, by and large. Legal in all cases. That means... Anytime, before or after birth, and for any reason. 60% of mainline Christians. Now, I have hope for you. Because Pew Research also discovered that among those who read the Bible regularly, pray regularly, and attend church regularly, the percentage of people who believe abortion should be legal in all cases drops to 14%. From 60% to 14%. You can see the power of God's word in action, truth. You can see the power of prayer. You can see the power of Christian fellowship. When we devote ourselves, as they say in Acts chapter 2, to the teachings of scripture, to the prayer and to fellowship, We are doing what is required of us by God, and in doing so, we hold one another to the standard that God has set, and we turn the tide in the culture. I believe we're called to do that as the church. We're not called to bear the sword. That is the government's responsibility, and the Lord appoints people to that, to prosecute evildoers, to to punish criminals. The government bears the power of the sword, but we bear the power of truth, the sword of the Spirit. And we are to bring truth to bear on the culture. That's why The Hebrew writer says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing, but all the more as you see the day approaching. We are called to gather together, to worship, to pray, to fellowship, and to grow in our knowledge and understanding of this book. The last thing I want to talk about today is the slippery slope. I'm kind of touching on all the big things that we're going to be talking about in this series, okay? So, the zeitgeist and how it's crept into the church and the slippery slope that it brings with it. That if you get on it, you're going to go all the way to the bottom of it. The slippery slope, remember, was unbelief that leads to error, that leads to heresy, that leads to schism. There are a lot of things in the Bible that we wish it didn't say. There's stuff in here we don't want to believe because we're human. The problem is that sometimes when we come across stuff in this book we don't want to believe, we don't want to hear, we stop hearing it and then we stop believing it which creates unbelief. True unbelief is actually the only sin left to be judged, as Hebrews tells us. Every other sin was judged when Christ hung on the cross. The only sin left to be judged is the sin of unbelief. And so when we read things in here that we don't like, or we don't want it, or when this thing says it stuff that we don't want it to say, It can create unbelief. But you can't avoid what this book has to say. Some of the issues that this book touches on are so predominant in the culture that you're eventually going to have to say something. Somebody's going to want your opinion at the breakfast table or in the break room Somebody's going to want your opinion somewhere along the way on some of the big issues that this book touches on. And so if you don't say what the Bible says, you'll end up saying something that is untrue, which is error. See, the slippery slope. Unbelief, which leads to error. You don't want it to say something, so you avoid it. Or you say, I don't believe that. But then eventually you're going to have to say something, and so you're going to say something wrong because you're not going to say what this book says. And so you're going to slip down the slope a little further to error. Now, a lot of people stay at error. But there are others that slip a little farther because error begets error. Two wrongs never make a right. Error always forces us to build doctrine on it. Because error comes from the father of lies. Error always says, make a doctrine out of that. Find some other verses in this this book that you can take out of context. Or make them say something they don't really say. So that you can make a doctrine out of it. When you make a doctrine out of error, it becomes heresy. Heresy. Now, not every preacher and teacher that is in error is a heretic. But every heretic was first in error. Because error eventually leads to heresy and to blasphemy. And heretics need to be purged from the church. Well, they first need to be told to repent. And they should have already been told to repent back at step one when they started to unbelieve. And then when they started to err, they should have been told to repent. And then when they started building doctrine on it, they should have been told to repent. But eventually, all heretics need to be confronted to say, repent or be removed. Now, most heretics are going to leave the church long before we need to force them out. They wander off. They don't want to be here. But Acts chapter 20, verse 30 says that some of them are going to stick around and draw the disciples away after them. They need an audience. They need a platform. They they want influence. And so some of them come from without, and many come from within, so that they can draw the disciples away after them. That's what Paul said to the Ephesian church, of which Pastor Timothy was one of the pastors. Before he left to Macedonia, he said, watch out, fierce wolves will rise up. Watch out. Heretics, false teachers, they need to be purged because they're going to draw away true disciples after them. Church, Jesus is truth. Amen. He is the truth. Amen. Capital T. Truth personified. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life He is the only way Amen. to the Father. The only way. The Bible makes it crystal clear. To believe anything else is to believe a lie. I've said it before and I'll say it again and many times throughout this series we'll say it. If you believe wrong, you'll never live strong. If you believe wrong, you'll never live strong. If you're always in a state of unbelief, or error. You're never going to live a strong, victorious Christian life. Will you make it to heaven? I should hope so. But you'll never live a strong Christian life, a victorious Christian life, if you believe wrong. If you believe wrong things about God and his word, you can't live strong, strong. This series fits into our overall vision as a church because we seek to be a Bible-based church, which simply means that our beliefs and our practices line up with this. We are sola scriptura. We believe that scripture holds the highest authority in our lives and in our church. Now, there is certainly authority that comes from other places like Christian tradition Logic, common sense, and the things that we have experienced. But all other authority in our lives and in our church must submit to this authority. Amen. If a church tradition contradicts this, we give up the tradition. If our logic and reason doesn't line up with this, then we are not practicing logic and reason If we experience something that this book doesn't describe in some way or affirm, we leave that experience where it was. We don't build doctrine on it. The only thing that we can build doctrine on is the Word of God. We are a Bible-based church. This book is the highest authority. As church, as families, as married couples, as individuals, we then must devote ourselves to the teachings of Scripture. We must endure sound doctrine because we are living in a time when people will not endure sound doctrine. We are the salt of the earth. We heard about a few weeks ago. But what if salt loses its saltiness? What if we're not devoted to sound teaching? How will they ever be devoted to it? They are the blind leading the blind out there. We were the ones who were blind, but now we see. We are the ones that were deceived, and now we know the truth. We are called to endure sound teaching. We must preach Christ and Him crucified. A lot of churches preach Christ, they preach a Christ. And a lot of churches just preach. But we want to preach Christ and Him crucified. Satan doesn't care if I stand up here and tell you how to manage your money and tell you, you know, five keys to success in your career. We could preach that stuff all day and Satan wouldn't even bother to show up because he'd already have us. But when we start preaching this book, he's banging at the door every Sunday morning at 8.30. When people start to come in to gather for prayer and worship practice, Satan's right there. That's why every time we pray in our prayer room before service, of course, we pray to God first and foremost, but we bind the works of the enemy because he hates what we're doing in here. But we preach Christ and him crucified. That is the gospel of God, the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. And when we're doing that, Satan is ticked that's why we need to declare songs like we claim, declared this morning. I speak to the enemy. You can't have my family. We belong to the Lord. That's the, that's the institution God wants to tear down above all. He wants to tear down your family, your marriages. We talked about it last week. He's got a 50-50 success rate in the first marriage. That rate doubles in the second. You better be in this book if you're married or in a second marriage because Satan is effective in his fight for your marriage. He's effective in his fight for your children's souls. Someone's telling them what to believe. Make sure it's you, mom and dad. As a church, we have to pursue revival, and we've defined revival as a radical return to this, and then relentlessly conforming our lives to this. So I say we're a Bible-based church. This MythBuster series goes right in with our overall vision to be a church that preaches Christ and him crucified, the whole counsel of God with an emphasis on the gospel, uh, a church that pursues revival, which is a return to this and conforming our lives to this. When we do that, everything changes, and we're a church that seeks to transform families. When we go by the book, Dad, when we go by the book, men, when we go by the book, moms and women, And young women and men and boys and girls, when we go by this book, we transform our family. When our family's transformed, that culture out there is going to get transformed as well. It's going to be turned on its head because we are going to transform it by having conversations about this book around the dinner table. I'm going to butcher the quote, but I know Ronald Reagan said something like, all national reform happens at the dinner table. And isn't that so true? We want to change the culture, and yeah, we do. And and we're going to have an Action for Canada meeting on June thirteenth or July thirteenth here, and, and we have an open house tonight, a, a town hall meeting with with an M- MP candidate, and and we believe that we should be involved in that sort of thing. But the transformation that we're looking to see, guys, is going to happen at the dinner table, in the living room, around the coffee table, when you're out on the. On the fishing boat or on the golf course or in the garden, wherever it is you are and you're talking to your spouse and your children, that's where culture is going to change. And then one final warning. This is the last thing I want to say. Guys, you've been so amazing, so attentive. Thank you so much. This is the last thing I want to say, and it's a warning, and it's simply this. Sound doctrine is not going to save you, okay? Systematic theology is not going to save you. It's easy to make sound doctrine an idol. We have to keep Jesus as our first love. I love this book. But these are they which testify of Him. This book helps me love Jesus more. We can't fall from our first love. I've talked about the church in Ephesus a lot because that's the church to whom Paul wrote when he wrote to this young pastor, Timothy. As I mentioned in Acts chapter 20, Paul is leaving the church in Ephesus. He was their, their pastor, their missionary evangelist for three years. He loved the people of Ephesus and they loved him. But God was leading him on. And so as, as Paul was leaving, he was charging the elders in Ephesus to watch out. Because fierce wolves are going to come in and, and lead people astray with, with bad Theology. So make sure you preach the word. And then Paul writes two letters to this young pastor saying, Okay, I know the false teaching has shown up. The false teachers are there. Watch out. Stick close to that which you heard from me in the beginning. And the only church that Jesus wrote to that Paul planted was the church in Ephesus. He's the church to which Jesus says, I know your works. That you test those who say they are apostles and are not. By the time Jesus writes to this church in the book of Revelation through John. The people in Ephesus got it together. They knew how to determine who who was an apostle and who was not, who was a sound teacher and who wasn't. Jesus commended them for their ability to discern Maybe if, if Ephesus, the people in Ephesus were alive today, they'd have YouTube channels and call them discernment blogs. I don't know. But they were really good at it. And Jesus commends them for, them, for it, but then he says one thing, I have this against you. You have forgotten your first love. Isn't that an amazing progression from Acts 20 to... The book of Ephesians and then the, book to, the books to the pastor of the Ephesians and then Jesus himself writing to them, saying, you, you believed right, you knew how to discern, but you forgot me. That's why I said, right belief trains us to love Jesus more, not John Calvin more. Right theology causes us to want to identify as a Christian, not as a Reformed. You see what I'm saying here? You gotta have good theology because if you have bad theology, you might be loving the wrong Jesus. You might be loving a Jesus, but there's only one true Jesus revealed in Scripture. And so we have to have good theology. But if our good theology is not leading us to intimacy with God through his spirit, it's not good theology. Because the outcome is not good. The outcome is what Jesus said to the Ephesians, I have this against you. I don't know about you, but I don't want Jesus to say that of me. Yeah, you're good here, but I got this against you. And so as we go through this MythBuster series, you have to remember this is a loving effort on our behalf, not to just discern for discernment's sake or to call out bad theology for the sake of it, but so that you and I would receive a crown of righteousness and fall more in love with Jesus, that instead of falling from our first love, we would fall more in love with him. And so my prayer is that throughout this series, we would let the word of truth cause people, cause us to either accept him as our savior or love him more each day. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You think about that. Amen. Amen.